So hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. We'll be talking to Louise Morris, who will be reading from and talking to us about her book, Operation Moonlight. So Louise, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Yvonne. It's an absolute honor. Oh, thank you. And it's my pleasure to have you, to hear you read and to also hear about the influences of the book and kind of get some of those insider insights. So shall we dive in? Yes, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So my first question is, what influenced you to write Operation Moonlight? Well, there were three ideas which converged to make one large idea, if you like. (laughs) Um, The first uh, thing that happened was I had a conversation with my friend back in 2018, my good friend Liz, and she was telling me about a super centenarian who she knew, a lady who was 110 years old, who was determined to become the oldest person in the world. And so she was still going strong. And she was the same age as my gran would have been had she still been alive. And I was just quite intrigued by this lady and her longevity. At the same time as that, my mum told me about something called the Coffin Clubs, which were at that time springing up around the country and around the world, actually, which are social clubs where people go, not just elderly people, but all sorts of people go, and they construct and decorate their own coffins, and they talk about end-of-life matters, and they they socialise, and it's like a social club. And in, in my mind, you know, when you get told different ideas, they start to sort of mix in your mind, and I started to kind of think about a super centenarian who perhaps went along to a social club like a coffin club. And I was starting to think about a story. And then the third idea came along and it basically set everything alight. And this was something that I discovered when I was uh, researching uh, a completely different historical novel. And I came across the female agents of the SOE, the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War. There were only 39 of these women and it was they had to sign the Official Secrets Act. And they were trained from 1942, along with their male counterparts, to become secret agents. And they were dropped into Nazi-occupied countries, Nazi-occupied France predominantly, to work behind the lines, helping the resistance, sending messages back to London and moving messages about basically being undercover, sabotaging um, railway stock and things like that. And I was just intrigued that... 39 completely ordinary women had been trained up in such a way and we'd hardly heard anything about them or most of them. There were a couple that we'd, we'd heard of, but I hadn't known anything about this. And so those three ideas came together and, and I gradually had the idea of this centenarian who had, ha- who had a dark secret in the war. She'd been involved with the special operations executive and she also belonged to a social club in the present which was going to pull these secrets out of her and there was going to be a mystery and all of that kind of thing. So that was that was what influenced me to write the book. I love that the three ideas came together. It's just like, like you know, just kind of knitted themselves together. And the idea of someone being like, I'm 110 and my aim is, be the, is to be the oldest person. Like, my goodness, like getting yeah. up every day going, you know what? Not yet. I need another. Like, that's just phenomenal to me. She's still alive, the lady that, that inspired oh. me to begin with. She's still alive, still going strong. That I mean, this was back in 2018 that she was 110. So she's, what is she now? 114 now? Yeah. Oh, go her. Yeah, go her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send her an audio of the book. 
to to listen to yeah oh does she know yet does she know she inspired you to write this I think her granddaughter has told her but I haven't met this woman so um maybe one day I will oh that's (laughs) lovely we did have the oldest man in Britain living in my hometown at the time I was writing it and I did visit him several times and he told me lots about the war so that was really really good Bob Bob Waiton he he was called um he's sadly no longer with us but he was an absolutely fantastic man and he was the oldest man in Britain at that point wow what a phenomenal yeah opportunity to be able to talk with him and get his real lived experiences yes that's yeah. wonderful could we hear some of the book please yes i'm going to read right from the start actually so this is chapter one and it opens in 2018 a sallow moon shines through the bedroom window watching her sleep will be elusive tonight betty knows always the way when it's a full moon she really ought to close the curtains but it would make no difference the moon will still be there whether she can see it or not. A monthly reminder as if she could ever forget. From across the landing, she can hear Tally's rumbling snores. Her carer would have slept through the blitz, Betty has no doubt. Lucky girl. Sighing, she hoists herself up in the bed, reaching for her glasses on the bedside table. Yesterday's times lies folded next to them, half read. She'll try the cryptic, see if that'll send her off. The moon's light is enough to see by if she squints. She rummages in the pockets of her bed jacket, but instead of the pencil she expects to find, she unearths a used tissue, a rusty hat pin, and a strange key whose lock she cannot recall. She peers at the key, an oddly shaped thing made of thick, twisted wire, turning it over in her palm. How had it come to be in her pocket? From his basket in the corner of the bedroom, Tosca whines softly. What do you make of this boy? Betty asks her elderly Scotty dog. Lately, trying to recall things has been like stumbling around the house in the dark, hands fumbling for a light switch or a door handle. This key, for instance, where did it come from? Its sudden appearance is a mystery. She turns the metal object over and over, her brain grinding with the effort of remembering. An image flickers and she thinks she has it, but no. She tries again, searching the shadowy recesses of her mind, tripping over memories long forgotten. The dog emits a soft growl. What is it, eh? Betty pushes herself further up the pillows, and as she does so, a vaguely familiar, smoke-horse voice comes clear to her across the years. A skeleton key will open almost anything. There, in the far corner of the bedroom, all but invisible in the shadows, stands a figure. As it slowly approaches, Betty's fingers tighten around the key. She knuckles her glasses up her nose, trying to bring the man, for it is a man, into focus. He's nearly at the bed when recognition pierces the blackness of her memory. It's a man she knows only as Mr. Smith, the lockpicker. Betty's heart stutters. Is she hallucinating? She hasn't seen her security instructor, Mr. Smith, since 1944. Yet here he is looking exactly the same as he did back then. Wiry as a ferret, greasy haired, wearing the same threadbare brown suit. There is a sudden waft of woodbines a smell that takes Betty straight back to Wombra Manor, special training school number five. Think of it always, speak of it never. He can't be real. He's surely long dead. How did you get in here, she demands. If this apparition is indeed Mr Smith, the question is redundant, she knows. A rumour had circulated at Wombra that their instructor had been sprung from Wormwood Scrubs for his un- unrivalled knowledge of breaking and entering. Mr Smith could get in and out of anywhere, apparently. Whatever the truth, he certainly knew his locks. The man grins, revealing blunt, 
tobacco-stained teeth. What sort of a welcome is that, young lady? Betty snorts at the thought of anyone, even a ghost, thinking her young. She lets the key drop onto the newspaper and takes off her glasses. But even after polishing the lenses on the frayed hem of her bed jacket, it makes no difference. He's still there, practically close enough to touch, though the outline of his body is a little smudged now, as though he's someone's unfinished sketch. A memory of Wanborough returns, watching Mr Smith demonstrate how easy it was to break into a sash window. Could use a jemmy, he'd sniffed. Not that you'll have one. Could stick brown paper covered in treacle to the glass and smash it with a hammer. Bloody faff if you ask me. Now, the quickest, easiest way is to slip your knife into the gap here, like so, and you're in. With a flick of his wrist, he'd slice the catch and the window was open. Betty clears her throat. Can I help you? Perhaps he's come for his key. The thought is ludicrous, a small part of her conscious brain acknowledges. But she's been brought up to be respectful, even to the dead. Especially to the dead. Just wondered if you'd heard, the lock picker smirks. Heard what? Mr Smith gestures at the newspaper on Betty's lap. Something on page 20 you'll want to see. She's loath to take her eyes off the man for fear that if she does so, he'll vanish. He's a bit of company after all. The nights can be so lonely, even with Tally in the room next door. But Mr Smith is gesturing at the times impatiently. Betty unfolds the newspaper, turns to page 20. The obituaries, of course. With half an eye on her strange visitor, she begins to read the first entry. Mrs Doris Bone, nay Waters, 101, died peacefully following a short illness on 27th of January at her home in Weybridge, Surrey. Betty's breath lodges in her throat, but she forces herself to read the whole obituary. Her dearest, oldest friend was gone. It didn't matter that she hadn't seen Doris since the war. They'd written to each other every Christmas and never forgot a birthday. She's kept those letters from Doris, every single one of them. In Doris's last communication, she'd been planning to visit Betty in Guildford. You and I can enjoy tea together at last and reminisce. The realisation that she will never see Doris again brings tears to Betty's eyes. She wipes at them with the tissue as the lockpicker drifts back into the shadows. Tally's snores resonate through the wall. Betty rubs her temples, fighting the weariness that sweeps through her, a dark tide that grows stronger each day. Death is inevitable, claiming everyone eventually. She knows this, but still she'll miss Doris. She'd been one of a rare breed, a fellow SOE survivor. There weren't many of them left, and now her friend was gone. It gets us all in the end, whispers Mr Smith. Betty searches the shadows, but the man is no longer there. The long, lonely hours of the night stretch before her. Wow. Is that okay? That is. (laughs) Wow. I love a good ghost story. (laughs) (laughs) So where did Betty come from as a character? Where did she, um, like, how did she come to you? Betty came quite fully formed, in all honesty, from what, from researching the SOE, the female agents of the SOE. I knew I needed a bilingual, so a French-speaking woman with a French past who was courageous and tenacious, but ordinary enough to pass under the radar of pretty much everybody. And a big inspiration was my own grandmother, who died when my twins were born in 2003. But my grandma was born in 1908. 
Um, and she was a huge part of my life up until 2003 when she died. And she was such an inspiration. And I really channeled my gran all the time I was writing Betty. My, my gran was tiny. She was barely five foot. She was born illegitimately in the north of England in deep poverty. And she survived two world wars, the 1918 flu epidemic, breast cancer and a bigamist husband, first husband. And she just had a rod of iron running through her. She was one of these ladies that just just kept going, was really strong, but tiny and came from nothing, but was wonderful. And so, yeah, my inspiration for Betty was definitely my gran. And um, my gran also spent a mysterious amount of time in France just before the war and would never talk about her time then. I'm not suggesting for a moment that she was in the SOE, but she she had a bit of a shadowy past and she she lived in the present. Um, She was she never, ever talked about the good old days. Um, And she she made us look to the future and to to be to be glad of the present and, you know, take each day as it came. And she would never talk of the past. And so, yeah, I, I did think I wonder I wonder, Gran, what you did in the war. I wonder if you did something in the war that you've never spoken of. We'll never know now, but um, but yeah. So that was my inspiration for Betty. I love that. Like your grandmother is an inspiration, and kind of allowing you to to imagine and explore, but also to give her um, a different sort of story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what a powerful give, thing. Mm, and to remember, of course, all those actual real women, those real female agents, um, only a few of whom. Are names that we've heard of, like Noronayat Khan and Vile Zavo, um, people like that. Most of them have just fallen into obscurity. So I was really keen to bring their stories back to light as well. They inspired me completely. So um, yeah, their 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 spirit was there the whole way through. Every time I felt a little bit that things were difficult or the story wasn't quite coming along. I would just think about what they went through. This is me writing. This is nothing compared to what these women actually did. So get a grip. (laughs) Get get writing. (laughs) I love that as inspiration. Like absolutely. Yeah. When you look at what, what people have gone through and what they would have gone through that training, leaving family, leaving friends, Mm. that, danger that they were you know going into and mm-hmm. this feeling that okay this this has to be worth it or this has to be you know whatever and that belief and then mm-hmm. being sent off and coming back and I guess ideally you know of course you don't want to be found out especially during it but coming back and I, I'm really curious what sort of welcome they might have received and where they are remembered like by who their you know their contributions are remembered Yes, there are there are a few um, monuments and statues and things dotted around, and there are some books written. Yeah. Um, actually, probably slightly more books written about the female agents and the males. Actually, to be honest, um, there's a wonderful book called Mission France by Dr. Kate Vigers, who it, that was my bible as I was writing it. She's what Dr. Vigers doesn't know about the SOE isn't worth knowing, and she she writes in depth about each female operative and what they went through and what happened afterwards most of them I mean I think I'm writing saying that 12 of them died on their missions one of them died all all of those died at the hands of the of the Nazis apart from one who died from meningitis during her mission and the others came home 
but they had obviously signed the Official Secrets Act. They couldn't talk. There was obviously no kind of uh, therapy afterwards or anything like that. They just had to basically slot back into their lives and not speak about what had happened. And they, most of them had witnessed t- terrible stuff and they'd risk their lives in, in a way that would, is very difficult for us to, to really appreciate now. Um, one false move, even asking for sort of milk in your coffee in a cafe would have caused you to be arrested. You know, it would have it would have raised suspicions that you were a spy because you should have known that. So they had to watch themselves the whole time. And, and I just don't know how they did it, really. I really don't. And their ages ranged from 19 to 51. Um, so we had real young ones going out there and we had women who were mothers, daughters, wives. Yeah. So it just it was just inspirational to me. I just just loved that all, all of it. I just thought it was wonderful. I love the idea of ordinary women doing extraordinary things. And they all sound pretty extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Could we have another reading, please? Yeah, so it's this is Operation Moonlight is a dual timeline novel. So it's set in 2018 and also 1944. In fact, the majority of the book is set in 1944. So this next reading is from chapter two, which starts uh, in 1944. So you go back in time to when Betty was a young woman. And back then, of course, she's known as Elizabeth. Okay, so I'm just going to read a few pages from chapter two. February 1944. Elizabeth peered through a slit in the blacked out window as her train wheezed into Waterloo Station half an hour late. The platform seethed with military personnel, harried commuters and weary Londoners clutching their scant belongings. Tightening the belt on the black peplum jacket she'd borrowed from her mother, Elizabeth stepped down from the train and was swept towards the exit in a stream of bodies. Incomprehensible tannoy announcements echoed in her ears as she negotiated her way through the crowded main concourse, heading towards what she hoped was the right exit. A poster on a wall caught her eye. Is your journey really necessary? The question burned in her mind as she pushed her way out into the freezing drizzle in search of a bus stop. The first bus Elizabeth attempted to board was rammed full, but the next offered limited standing room. She forced her way down the packed aisle, breathing shallowly, the air thick with the stench of grime and soot and unwashed bodies. Clutching a hanging strap, she braced her legs as the bus lurched out onto the main road. The steamed up windows ran with condensation, blurring Elizabeth's view of her journey as the bus trundled on, swaying round corners. Her stomach swayed with it. For the first time since leaving home, she wondered if she was doing the right thing. It was a risk coming into London, and all on the basis of a single letter, even if that letter was from the war office. She fingered the envelope in her coat pocket. Dear Miss Ridley, I would be obliged if you could attend a meeting with me at the Hotel Victoria, Northumberland Avenue, London, on 20th February, to discuss the recent photographs you kindly submitted to the Admiralty. I apologise for the short notice. Please come alone and hotel reception will direct you. Yours sincerely, Captain Porter. Elizabeth had been both disconcerted and intrigued by the lack of detail in the letter, but her mother, Florence, was suspicious when she'd shown it to her at breakfast yesterday. What does this Monsieur Porter want with you? Florence had demanded. Je ne sais pas, Elizabeth had answered. But I can't very well ignore it, Maman. It's from the government. As the bus rumbled over Westminster Bridge and on towards Northumberland Avenue, Elizabeth stared through a patch of window that a passenger had wiped clear. 
Bomb-damaged buildings slid past beyond the glass, and she glimpsed shattered roofs and collapsed walls, broken furniture piled in the streets like matchwood. The bus lurched on, past a short parade of sandbagged shopfronts. Dazed Londoners loitered on the wreckage-strewn pavement, waiting to be fed at a Salvation Army mobile canteen. Elizabeth shuddered at the unfurling scene of horror. Her initial sense of excitement at leaving Guildford had long since dissipated, replaced now by a feeling of sick dread. What on earth had possessed her to come here? Before the war, she'd loved visiting London, only an hour from home on the train. She and her mother had sometimes gone window shopping along Oxford Street, and once Mr Farr, her boss at the solicitors, had organised a Christmas staff outing to see a show at the Apollo Victoria. Elizabeth had never forgotten her first experience of the Art Deco Theatre, the huge domed ceiling and gleaming organ pipes reaching to the roof, the stage lights morphing as if by magic from emerald green to mauve to burnished gold. That night she'd been transported to a fantastical underwater world, a wondrous mermaid grotto, and the memory had stayed with her forever since. But on this freezing grey February morning, she struggled to reconcile her memories of the city with the dispiriting, frightening reality unfurling beyond the streaming window. By the time the bus turned onto Northumberland Avenue, she'd convinced herself she'd made a grave mistake. She had no more scenic photographs of France if that was what this Mr Porter, whoever he was, wanted. Well, there was one other photograph, but she wasn't going to relinquish that one, as it was the only picture she had of her parents together, enjoying their honeymoon on the beach in Normandy. The bus was slowing before a looming brownstone building, sandbags piled around its entrance. Hotel Victoria, the conductress yelled. The bus shuddered to a stop, and Elizabeth pushed her way down the steps and out onto the rain-slick pavement. Straightening the hem of her tweed skirt, she took a deep breath, gazing up at the Soot Street edifice before her. As she'd made it this far, she may as well go in. Massive glass and mahogany revolving doors led to an ornate grey and ochre marble foyer beyond, echoing with voices. Elizabeth paused inside the entrance, observing the knot of people gathered at the reception desk. Most wore the various uniforms of service personnel. She watched a couple of porters pushing trolleys, teetering with suitcases and boxes across the foyer messenger service boys flitting amongst them like minnows. She drew in another steadying breath, counselling herself sternly. It had taken her a damn long time to get here, and no doubt the journey back home would take even longer, so she may as well find out what this Captain Porter wanted. And the sooner she saw him, the sooner she could go, as she really didn't want to be caught out if an air raid siren went off. The prospect of taking shelter in the London underground turned her guts to water. She'd heard horror stories of what went on down there. She waited her turn at the reception desk, handing her letter to a clerk for inspection. Room 238 is on the fifth floor, the woman informed her. The lift's broken. The fifth floor, when she reached it, was bustling with more military personnel, but no one paid her any heed as she hurried along a carpeted corridor. Arriving at room 238, she hesitated again. Can I risk rien, nor rien? Her mother's favourite saying came into Elizabeth's head. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Elizabeth rolled her tense shoulders, smoothed her damp hair and knocked on the door. A man's voice issued from beyond. Come in. (laughs) It's so full of tension and really vivid description. And I love how you sound and all the senses. It was like you just pulled us right into it. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. I'm glad about that. (laughs) 
Are you welcome? <laughs> it shows, it shows. So my final question that I get to ask is, what is your favorite scene of the book? I think my favorite scene has to be when Elizabeth is dropped over occupied France in the middle of the night on her own by parachute. Because that was the point at which I thought, right up until that point, I'd followed these female agents through their training and I could see myself doing all their training. I really could. I mean, all their weapons training, their silent killing, their Morse coding. What else did they do? They did long, long treks. They did navigation. They did all sorts of things, blowing things up on beaches in, in Scotland. Their training was was intriguing to me. And I could see myself doing every single one of those things until it came to the point <laughs> where <laughs> they were literally strapped into a parachute and they were dropped over occupied France and at that point I thought these women were something else because it is something to to do that as a tandem or or, do you know what I mean to do it in daylight in safety into a safe country but to do that into a country where the minute you dropped in and landed you could be shot or taken prisoner you didn't know where you were being dropped you were on your own completely. All you had was the training you'd been given, which was woefully inadequate. Most of them found as soon as they reached France, they realised what they'd been trained wasn't enough. It was very different when they got there. So that was my favourite scene. And, and another reason it was my favourite scene was because I made a pact with myself that I would I would parachute out of a plane because I couldn't write the chapter that Elizabeth jumps authentically unless I'd done it myself. And I have a paralyzing fear of heights. I cannot climb ladders. It's that bad. Uh, My son once was marooned on top of a flat roof as a small child, and I couldn't climb up to get him down and my own son. (laughs) Um, And someone else had to do it. So the fact that I, that I decided that I was going to have to parachute out of the plane, I felt I was doing these, these women, you know, I I was being honorable to them because I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to put myself through hell to see what it was like. And it was fascinating because I was able to draw on all the physical feelings that you get with fear and how it changes over time. So in the two weeks running up to my jump, I didn't sleep, hardly slept. So that impacted my emotions. I was quite emotional. Uh, I was very tearful and, (laughs) you know, not in a happy place by the time it came to the jump day. Oh, no. <laughs> and but I was I was I jumped with a with with a tandem. Obviously, the man I was jumping with, he was an expert and he knew what he was doing. So I wasn't on my own. But uh it was still I found it almost impossible to do and it was absolutely horrendous and I nearly fainted coming down. So wait, I'm sorry, after you were out of the plane. So you didn't yeah. you were jumping and that yeah. part you were fine and then you while you were going down, you nearly fainted. Yeah. Oh so the other the other interesting bit just before we we went out of the plane, so we're dangling out of the out of the doorway of the plane, and I needed to know what Elizabeth would have felt at that moment of just about to drop, and I thought she'd perhaps have her life flash before her eyes, or she would be shaking or crying or something like that. And actually, she wasn't because I wasn't. Mm. What actually happened to me at that point was. The whole world and my entire life just paused. Nothing. It, I was absolutely numb. I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. 
I'm too busy to die, but I'm going to die. And this is what it feels like. And it just felt like nothing. It was absolutely nothing. And then, of course, we dropped and we we were in free fall for, you know, many seconds. Um, My stomach was in my mouth. And then the parachute deploys and you're jerked up. And then everything is very quiet. It's, it's absolutely quiet up there. And the vast scenery that you can see is awe-inspiring. And the guy I was with said, welcome to my office. And he spread his arm. And there was we were, we were dropping over Salisbury Plain. So, of course, he was showing me Stonehenge. We could see the sea in the distance. I mean, it was gorgeous. And I was fine. All the time I could forget that I was dangling from a harness. And every time I remembered I was dangling from a harness, I would feel sick again Mm. but then I would stop and look at the scenery and it was so it wasn't horrendous all the way down but anyway yeah I think the fact that um I hadn't eaten and drunk either very much up until that point and I hadn't slept so as we were descending I started to feel like I was going to faint and I warned him about this and he was very unsympathetic he basically (laughs) said (laughs) well you can't because you've got to remember to Bring your legs up when you land, otherwise we're going to crash. So you just can't faint. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, all right, then I won't faint. So I didn't. I didn't faint. <laughs> I didn't faint, and um, and we made it down. And I like that so, you were able to reschedule your fainting. <laughs> yeah, I no can't faint because otherwise I'm just a dead weight on his front, and we would have a crash, and it wouldn't be good. So um, yeah, but I really felt. Like my gran was with me as well. I thought, gran, don't, don't, gran, come on, get me down here. And so she did. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) So we have time for one final reading, please. So this final reading is actually the scene where she drops out of the plane. (laughs) 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 I thought, having told you that, I will just read what it was like. The plane, a Halifax bomber painted matte black, loomed on the tarmac. Elizabeth gaped up at it, unable to believe that this huge aircraft was solely for her. The pilot was already on board making his final checks, and it was the dispatcher, a lanky, bright-eyed young warrant officer called Bryant, who helped Elizabeth into the aircraft. As she climbed into the fuselage, she couldn't help but notice the chipped paintwork and the damage from machine gun fire. Welcome aboard the Lunar Express, Bryant said with youthful cheeriness. Moonlight all the way. The windowless plane stank of hot engine oil. And as there were no seats, Elizabeth was forced to sit on the floor on an old sleeping bag. With her parachute pulling on her back, she struggled to find a comfortable position, watching Bryant as he secured the last of the cargo. To her left came the cooing and rustling of homing pigeons in their little wire cages. Stacked at the rear of the plane, over the bomb bay, were half a dozen large black cylindrical metal containers, each a foot in diameter and six feet in length. They reminded Elizabeth of coffins, but instead of bodies inside, she knew from her lectures at Ringway that they contained all manner of supplies for the resistance. Bicycle repair kits, torches, batteries and bandages, first aid kits, soap, boots, water purifying tablets, blankets, toilet paper, jemmies and wire cutters. Some of the canisters were packed with food, sugar, tea, coffee, tins of sardines, biscuits, powdered egg, jam, oats, chocolate and tobacco, others filled with sabotage equipment, guns and knives. The containers would be dropped before her, most destined for resistance circuits she would likely never meet. 
With her back braced against the wall of the plane, the straps of her parachute digging into her shoulders, she tried to relax. On a signal from the pilot, Bryant sealed up the trapdoor, then turned off the interior light, plunging them into gloom. The engines thundered louder, and Elizabeth sensed the plane start to move, gathering speed along the runway. Bryant reached behind Elizabeth, attaching a static line to her parachute. The other end of the strap he clipped to an overhead wire. Her life depended on this thin length of webbing, Elizabeth knew. She prayed it wouldn't break. Barley sugar, Bryant bellowed, presenting a sweet on an oily palm. Elizabeth took it gratefully. The engines roared, the walls of the plane thrumming as the Halifax rose higher, higher. Elizabeth's ears began to ache and she sucked on the sweet, thinking of the lipstick holder in her pocket. One hard bite and it'll all be over. The thick stench of aviation fuel was making her nauseous and the higher the plane climbed, the colder the air grew. Soon she couldn't feel her feet. Bryant, she noticed, had turned up the fur collar of his leather flying jacket, but apart from that, he didn't seem to be affected by the temperature at all. Only a short while ago, she'd been warm and safe on the ground, surrounded by people she trusted. Now she was on her own, flying into the freezing dark. In a few short hours, she would be dropped into a country controlled by a ruthless, deadly enemy. All her training seemed suddenly, ridiculously inadequate. If she survived the night, it would be a miracle. An hour passed. They were zigzagging across the channel, Bryant informed her. Elizabeth thought of the stretch of sea below, both connecting her to home and at the same time separating her from all she knew and loved. Have a kip, Bryant yelled after a while. Surely rest was impossible, yet she must have dozed. For some indefinable time later, she felt a tap on her leg and opened her eyes to find the dispatcher holding out a flask of coffee. Over the Seine now, Bryant shouted, the roar of the engines almost drowning out his voice. He switched on a little handheld torch, negotiating the boxes and containers, and knelt by the trap door. As he lifted the boards away, Elizabeth felt a gust of warm air. Her stomach rolled, bile mixing with a bitter trace of coffee in her mouth. She tried not to look at the trap door, concentrating her gaze on Bryant instead, as he, t- as he tightened straps around bundles of paper. Leaflets, he shouted, tossing the bundles one after the other through the hole. They disappeared in an instant, sucked out into the ether. The homing pigeons were next to be expelled. Their compact wire containers made an odd whistling sound as they hit the plane's slipstream. Hope some of them fly home, Bryant yelled. There's a questionnaire in the box with them, but I reckon most of them will end up eaten. Elizabeth mustered a weak smile. Your turn soon, Bryant gave her a thumbs up. It took every ounce of Elizabeth's willpower to shuffle to the trapdoor. She sat on the edge, legs dangling through the hole, wind tugging at her boots. Risking a glance down, she could see a dark swathe of land below, a blur of fields and farms and woodland. Wisps of cloud streamed past beneath her feet, and through feathery ribbons she glimpsed a river twining like a silver snake through the landscape. She was startled to see a parachute float past, followed by another. And another. It took her a moment to realise Bryant had jettisoned the canisters from the Bombay. Oh God, that meant she was next. She tried to summon her courage. You've trained for this. Bryant was back next to her, checking Elizabeth's suitcase and the length of webbing that attached it to her harness. The case would drop with her to be released just before she landed. 
her wireless set was packed in a foam and rubber-lined bag and would be sent out immediately after her, attached to its own miniature parachute. The plane abruptly dropped several feet and Elizabeth's stomach dropped with it. She focused her attention on Bryant's face, eerily lit by the red light on the panel on the wall. Nearly there, Bryant yelled. He was leaning over the hole, searching for the torchlights marking out the landing site several hundred feet below. The reception committee would flash a prearranged Morse letter, but it was hard to make things out so far up. Elizabeth began to count in her head, but as each second passed, it felt as though her brain was shutting down and she could think no further than ten. She was barely aware of her hands, gripping the straps of her harness, her feet swinging in the void. Warm air from the engines rose through the trapdoor, but she couldn't stop shivering. Bryant grasped her shoulder. Get ready! Elizabeth squeezed her eyes shut, heart hammering every single molecule in her body contracted to this one moment. She forced her eyes open again. I'm not ready, she wanted to scream, but the red light had winked out and now the green light shone, as if in slow motion, Bryant's arm was swooping down, the signal for her to jump. Go, go, go! And suddenly she was dropping through the hole, her stomach in her throat, plummeting into the void. So vividly descriptive and just like, I felt like we were falling with her. Thank you Thank so you, much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for that. So, Louise, where can we find the book? Well, it's it's pretty much everywhere. It's in Waterstones um, and, and, and Foils and WH Smith and on Amazon. But I would like to put a little plug in for the libraries as well. Quite a lot of libraries have stocked it, uh, which I'm so thrilled with. I've I've worked in libraries all my working life, public and private and school libraries, and I feel really passionately about them. So if you are short of cash, please just borrow it from the library. <laughs> That's wonderful. Libraries are my favorite places yeah, in the but whole also, world. Also buy a copy too. <laughs> exactly. So but, uh, buy and borrow one. <laughs> yeah. But I love I love libraries. They're so important. And um yeah. Yeah. To be for them to be available in for my book to be available in libraries is an absolute dream come true. So yeah. Oh, Louise, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. It's been such a treat. It's been an honor, Yvonne. Thank you so much. A real pleasure.